Hello and welcome to another episode of Dancer Talks. My name is McCall Sheets and I'll be your host. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Allie Block. Allie Block is a professional ballet dancer as well as Columbia University graduate with a bachelor's in psychology. On this episode, we chat about mental health in the dance world, perfectionism, the future of the dance psychology field, and much more. I hope you enjoy. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So, Allie, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and about your dance journey? Sure. Um, So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and I decided at age eight that I wanted to become a professional ballet dancer. Um, I think my first actual experience as a professional was when I was 11. I was Clara with the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. Um, So I did that for two years. I did the national tour, um, and that really reinforced for me that I loved, you know, the life of performing. Um, It was definitely a bit of a crazy experience as an 11 and 12-year-old, like having a tutor, being out of school, and um, performing that much. Um, And then I was actually invited on the international tour um, as well. So it was a a pretty awesome experience. and confirmed for me at a very young age that I wanted to really pursue this professionally. Um, so then I continued training at North Carolina School of the Arts, Miami City Ballet School, and my first job was with Texas Ballet Theater in 2009. I was there for a few seasons, and then I danced with Eugene Ballet Company in Oregon, um, which is a company that is based, of course, in Eugene, Oregon, but we spend um, a lot of time touring. So. I was there for another two seasons, spent a lot of time touring the Pacific Northwest, dancing a lot of mixed classical and contemporary rep. Um, It was a pretty pretty cool experience, Um, a lot of stage time, um, definitely intense touring, but it was very cool to experience that. Um, And then when I was 24, I decided to kind of take a risk, throw caution to the wind, and move to New York and try out a freelance career as a dancer. Um, you know, I, I'm very grateful for the years that I spent dancing full-time in professional companies, but, um, we'll probably get into this a little bit later in the podcast, but, you know, the, the environments in professional ballet companies can be very challenging. Um, and personally, I felt that I was losing sort of my connection to the world at large. I felt like I was losing my sense of worldliness, um, my world became very insular. I think, you know, as dancers, so many of us tend to be so driven and so focused and it's easy to get very tunnel visioned about the work that we're doing. So I found myself getting just just like that, very tunnel visioned about my work as a dancer and kind of losing um, connection with like the broader, more holistic aspects of life. So decided to try moving to New York. Um, I'm dancing here, and it was terrifying. Um, I also applied to Columbia University on a whim, actually, because I am a nerd, and I always knew that I'd want to go back to school. I've always had a deep interest in studying psychology, um, and my intention was sort of to try Columbia part-time, see how dancing panned out in the city. I figured if it didn't pan out well, I would just, you know, rejoin another full-time company and then maybe come to Columbia in summers and take like 15 years to graduate. But um, this is 2014, ended up moving here, fell in love with living in New York City. Um, I was able to book a consistent amount of work um, and somehow for the past nine years now I've had consistent work 
um, as a performer in New York, and then I fell in love with my studies at Columbia, getting to sort of indulge the nerd side of me as well. Um, so yeah, the past nine years I've been here in New York. Um, I danced with the Glevsky Valley on Long Island for a number of seasons. Then I freelanced with a number of companies on top of that. Thomas Ortiz dance, Lydia Johnson dance, um, worked with choreographers like Claudia Schreier, Emery Lacrone, Amy Hall Garner. Um, and then I've also done some principal guestings um, in New York and nationally. So it's been quite an interesting experience. Definitely not the traditional career path that I would have envisioned when I was younger, but it's been really fulfilling and um, it was honestly really amazingly grounding to be able to do my bachelor's in psychology uh, as well. Um, so I graduated in 2020 with that. Um, so that's sort of my, my dance journey in a nutshell. Wow, that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's cool that you got to come to New York after having those experiences and then having another experience. So you can combine all of these journeys that you've had through dance that were so different from each other mm -hmm. and then use it in your career in psychology. Yes. Um, no, I, I feel that I've been very lucky, um, you know, in terms of opportunities. And like I said, it's been a very non-traditional sort of path. You know, when I when I joined Texas Ballet Theater when I was 19, I very much thought like, great, I, you know, joined a company, I got a paid position. Like, it's hard to come by those that I'm just gonna stay here. And um, then, so I was an apprentice there for two years, um, or I guess the world of dance has changed, but what by today's standards would have been an apprenticeship, like a paid weekly contract and, you know, like entry level, and then I did not get a promotion to the core. Um, so, you know, then I shifted to Eugene and found all of these things about the environment that were not, um, that didn't sort of fulfill me holistically, like I said. So I, I think, you know, my career path has deviated largely from what I would have envisioned as a kid, but it has honestly, I think, been more fulfilling and provided me with more opportunities than I ever would have dreamed. And as you mentioned, because I have had this building interest in a secondary career in clinical psychology, sort of working in all of these different environments has really shaped um, sort of myriad sides of that interest and showed me different sides of the dance world, different sides of work environments and how they can really shape the ways we think and our mental health. Um, so it, it's definitely led me to um, to build an interest in, 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 you know, an upcoming career when I'm ready to retire from dancing. And can you tell me a little bit about your research that you're doing now, what you're working on now in psychology and how that uh, combines with dance? Sure. Um, so it's funny, when I started dancing professionally, so I guess at this point it's been 14 years, I'm thinking about my early days dancing, you know, like as an apprentice and full-time companies, I remember I always really enjoyed talking to my coworkers about, you know, struggles and um, challenges. And, you know, there's, we all know there's a lot of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, uh, you know, body image struggles, imposter syndrome and dance. And, you know, there's a lot of stress over casting, promotions, job security. And, you know, I dealt with all of this myself. And when coworkers would deal with it, I always gravitated towards talking my coworkers through, you know, sort of giving them pep talks. And I found that really fulfilling. I really enjoyed helping people through their struggles. And a number of my colleagues and friends pointed out to me over the years, like, you're very good at this. I always feel 
better when I talk to you. You seem to have a knack for this. Um, and so I, I think I had this very glorified vision of what it was to be like a therapist or go into psychology. And from that, those early days of my performance career, like upper teens, early 20s, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do in my next career. I want to be a therapist. I want to be a clinical psychologist. And then when I came to Columbia, I knew that I wanted to study psychology. Um, and I quickly realized that my glorified vision of what therapy is, it's not just pep talks. It's not just, you know, <laughs> enjoying talking to people and giving, you know, uplifting advice. Um, it involves a lot more than that research, specific training. Um, I mean, of course, I knew there would be training. But I, I fell kind of deeply in love with the research portion of things while I was at Columbia. Um, and so I'll try to nutshell this as much as possible because, you know, I could talk for hours about this, but I essentially, I started working in a lab at Columbia, a social psychology lab. Um, and while I was in that lab, I worked in my undergraduate thesis and I started by investigating work environments. Um, and I looked specifically at work environments in professional ballet companies. And I looked at how the aspects of the work environment affect female employees' willingness and levels of comfort to speak out in issues of workplace sexual harassment or other workplace grievances. Um, so I was starting to sort of take an interest in looking at the ways our environment sort of shape our experience and our, you know, our levels of safety and comfort advocating for ourselves. Um, it was interesting going through that research. It was not so much in the realm of clinical psychology because um, Columbia undergrad does not have a clinical psych department. It's a more experimental department, but I did find interesting results from that research um, indicating that you know the more restrictive, um, they're kind of known as culturally tight work environments. So environments that have strong social norms, strong rules, like strong punishment for any deviation from those norms. So you picture, sort of like the traditional ballet company where like you want to fit in, you don't rock the boat, you know, you want to blend in physically, aesthetically, you know, personality-wise in every way. In such environments, it is far less likely that female employees will feel comfortable to speak up about their needs. Um, so that kind of kick-started my interest in researching, you know, ballet company environments and how, um, you know, these work environments shape people. And then since graduation, um, I graduated in an interesting time. I graduated in 2020, so right in the middle of COVID. And at that point, you know, performing was sort of temporary, or traditional performing rather, was sort of temporarily off the docket. Um, so I knew I was gonna need to get some other kind of work. So I ended up, I lucked out, I found a job um, working part-time as like, the office manager, research assistant, um, and medical assistant to the former chief psychiatrist of the state of New York. Um, and I've kept in that job since July 2020, so I work there part-time, and it has been interesting because it's afforded me the opportunity to work a lot with clinical populations, see how a psychiatry practice runs. It has also given me the flexibility to continue performing as performing has come back online, and it has also also given me the opportunity to continue exploring research in other realms. So I, um, I've been working there, and I also started, this was fall 2020, so shortly into the pandemic, um, I was actually recruited initially as a participant for a study. Um, the study is through Boston College School of Management, um, so it's actually in the Department of Organizational Psychology and Management. It's a study looking at 
professional ballet dancers in professional ballet companies. And at first when I was recruited as a participant, the researchers weren't quite sure what direction they wanted to take the research. Um, you know, when I spoke to them, I told them I had recently completed my honors research thesis on very similar subject matter. So they ended up scrapping me as a participant and taking me on as a research assistant. And then as we honed in on, you know, sort of the, the emergent themes as we were interviewing dancers, one of the themes that really came up as a prominent and consistent theme was that of maladaptive perfectionism. So the ways that the dehumanization and the challenges of a professional ballet company environment really, really lead to dancers um, struggling with unhealthy levels of perfectionism, unhealthily high levels of expectation for themselves, incredible levels of self-criticism for the smallest mistake. Um, and that in turn leads to, you know, myriad other struggles, anxiety, depression, body image issues, substance abuse disorder. Um, so it is interesting because though that study is, again, in the realm of organizational psychology, it really dipped into my interests of the more clinical sides of things. Um, so I've spent a lot of time on that project sort of digging into the literatures on organizational psychology and management in addition to clinical psychology. Um, and it's really been a deep dive into the ways the, the traumas of a dehumanizing work environment affect people. Um, so I've been doing quite a bit of research on that. Wow, that is awesome work that you've been doing. So as you study these things, do you ever get to understand the causes of them or some things that could help mm -hmm. people with these issues mm -hmm. as well? So that is a, it's a good question, a loaded, a loaded and complicated question. Um, so the research I'm doing with this team from Boston College um, is more qualitative. So a lot of this is data we've collected from interviews and we're looking at, you know, sort of emergent themes. I've also started doing some research as a clinical research intern um, over at Mount Sinai School of Medicine on a study looking at PTSD and World Trade Center survivors. So I'm sort of looking, I'm, I'm trying to build my research experience in trauma from multiple angles and both of these studies are looking at sort of the causes and I guess solutions is too strong a word but just sort of responses how we can move towards solutions for these deep forms of trauma so in terms of causes um, and, and I'll focus mostly on you know professional ballet company environments for the purposes of, of this um, talk but the causes are largely born from leadership in companies carrying this inter intergenerational trauma. So I think within the history of ballet, you know, there has always been a high demand and high level of perfectionism sort of required. Um, you know, there are strong aesthetic demands. You know, dancers have always been required to look a certain way physically to meet certain physical and weight requirements. There's always been an expectation of conformity, particularly in the corps de ballet. And even beyond that, just, you know, looking a certain way, having a certain physicality, there's always been, um, you know, a strong, a strong, few jobs and a strong demand for people trying to get those jobs. So there's always been that supply and demand issue, particularly with women in ballet. So I think that one of the things that has really emerged in the research is that the lack of job security, simply because dancers are always replaceable. We always feel replaceable. We always feel that if we make a mistake at any moment, there's, there are 
hundreds of dancers waiting in line for our job. Um, and so I think that contributes to a deep sense of insecurity, which therefore reinforces this deep need to be perfect. Um, that can then lead to obsession and just really unhealthy obsessions with perfectionism that benefit no one, um, you know, and lead to incredible instances of mental health issues, um, you know, burnout, intense depression, intense anxiety, intense substance abuse. And these are all themes that we've seen emerging in the research. Um, and in terms of solutions, one of the things that we have found as a theme in our research, again, this is the, the Boston College study, is that a lot of dancers tend to hit a point, a turning point moment, where they learn to shift from dehumanization to almost a more rehumanizing form of perfectionism. So from maladaptive perfectionism that can lead to these deep mental health challenges and you know like this deep lack of satisfaction in their lives and work to a more healthy holistic you know view of themselves as humans and artists and often the turning point can come in the form of an injury or just hitting a point where you're so burnt out physically or emotionally from all of this deep you're laughing at me because I know <laughs> this this just resonates with so many people but you know just hitting this point where it just all hits ahead and you know we are all human as it turns out and you know we only have so much physical and emotional capacity um, so a lot of the time dancers will hit that kind of turning point and just realize this is not sustainable this approach I'm taking is not sustainable um, and then that can lead to a few routes sometimes dancers will choose to exit the field and rehumanize externally going to school you know going into a yoga practice, you know, whatever it takes, realizing that there is more to you than being a dancer and that you can be a full human, a full woman, a full man, you know, externally. There are other dancers who find ways to cope and learn to rehumanize within the field of ballet. So for me, I've, ha I've actually found that transitioning from a full-time company lifestyle to a more freelance lifestyle has helped me. That is not to say that there are not, you know, you know aspects of dehumanization and um you know disrespect within the freelance world i have still experienced a high 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 degree of that but i feel that as a freelancer i have a lot more agency over the steps i can take with my own career so for example i've, I've worked with a number of directors who have you know not treated their artists with respect or not treated their artists as full humans you know has have treated us as numbers have sort of carried forth that intergenerational trauma of, you know, and, and the thing that's, that's the most disconcerting, I think, is that you see younger directors who are actually quite woke, so to speak, um, you know, are more recently retired themselves, some of them are even still dancing, mm -hmm. and, you know, many of them who are aware of all of these issues and really go into building their own company or, you know, gig or project with the intention of, changing things and making things better, but there's what I've seen as a theme in the research and from my own experience and observation is that so frequently the intergenerational trauma that comes from generations before, leaders before in ballet, it's so ingrained in us that even the more aware, more woke directors are often still passing down, you know, some of these elements to younger dancers. It's not everyone. This is in no way me criticizing every director or choreographer out there. There are plenty of wonderful humans out there running wonderful companies and organizations and schools. Um, but as a broad theme, and this is something that has come up largely in the research we're doing, um, 
that intergenerational trauma it perpetuates. Um, yeah. So I think one of the things I'm really interested in researching, you know, ideally one day in grad school and hopefully a research career beyond, is how do we curb the intergenerational trauma? Like, what do we do to curb that? And what are the socio-emotional strategies that people can use to cope with, with these, you know, traumas being carried forward? Yeah. Wow. A lot of that resonated with me. I saw your, um, I saw your <laughs> facial responses when I was saying some of that, and I'm like, yeah, she gets it. I mean, of course you get it. You're a dancer, too. Yeah. We've, we've all sort of lived through these things. Yeah, you know? like, growing up, um, I started out, like, in a little, you know, jazz studio, mm-hmm. and then I transitioned into a ballet conservatory, which was, I don't know, really intense, I would say. Mm-hmm. And it was so strict, and basically hearing what my teacher said back then, like, sometimes I'll be reminded randomly and I'll just think about what, like, something they said. Like, oh, yeah. oh you should only, st- like, never ask questions and only stand in the back and do mm-hmm. this and that. And, like, sometimes it still, ha- like, repeats in my head. Oh, yeah. And that was, like, 15 years ago. It's so crazy that those things stick with you. And, yeah, throughout my time in college I got injured a lot Mm -hmm. and that made me reframe my thoughts about dance because I think one thing that dancers it's like it's good and bad but you focus so much on your dream and your career and training and I mean you have to because it's such a demanding art form and I would say like athletic form as well um but you don't really get to experience a lot of other things in life Mm -hmm. and when I was injured I when I had my first injury sophomore year of college I was like what do I do with my life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was really sad for a long time when I was injured because I didn't know who I was outside of dance but it was a growth period because when I went back to dancing when I was healed I realized oh yeah I can do all these other things Mm -hmm. and I'm still worth something when I'm not dancing it, look at you, you're out here running marathons, yeah. like, you know, post-bot, like, it, it, it is interesting, too, that you say that, because I, I think there is such an identity struggle for dancers, we are trained to feel as if, in order to be successful dancers, all we can focus on is ballet and our craft, and, you know, people always say that ballet is a lifestyle, and I think as we're growing up training, you know, if you want to do this seriously, if you want to do this professionally, you make sacrifices throughout your entire childhood obviously you did I know I did every single colleague friend I have who has had a professional dance career made endless sacrifices as a kid you know we spend our summers maybe our friends from school are at summer camp or out you know eating popsicles or doing cool internships and we are at ballet summer programs and that's fine because it's what we love Um, You know, it's the ways we eat, it's the ways we take care of our schedules, it's the ways we are driven and focused academically so we can make time for our ballet training. It's the way so many of us leave home young to train. I was 16 when I left home to go to North Carolina School of the Arts and that's quite within the norm in ballet. But, you know, for my parents, it was, they were very supportive, but it was devastating for me, for them to watch their 16 year old leave home that, you know, that young. Um, but it is interesting because, you know, I, like you and probably so many other dancers have grown up in this mentality of like, 
everything is about dance, um, you know, and I know this affects people in different ways, but like I did not date, I didn't really think about dating, I didn't think about, I had friends, but I didn't think of, like I, it didn't even phase me to turn down a social event if I had a performance or I had to be at a rehearsal, like it just wasn't even a question. And I think one of the things that really, really was eye-opening for me and really helped me when I moved to New York, started freelancing, and I was dancing a lot, don't get me wrong, but it was even just the fact that I wasn't just dancing in one environment. So every dance gig or company or environment I was in was slightly different. It was different people, people with slightly different viewpoints, and then starting at Columbia, and then just being immersed in you know the culture of New York City where there's so much to do, what I quickly came to see is that I actually began to dance better. I felt more solid technically and more artistically fulfilled when I had other aspects mm -hmm. and dimensions of my life that were feeling more whole. Um, and, and I really think that I hit the best years of my dancing while freelancing in New York, while at Columbia, while I felt balanced, um, like I, I would say personally, I feel that I, I sort of hit my career peak between maybe 26 and 30. It was like right up until COVID hit. Like I was having my best opportunities, um, dancing roles that I truly never would have dreamed of. And I think a huge part of that is the fact that I had this sense of groundedness that came from being in school as well. I was in my first serious relationship, which incidentally was not until I was 26 years old because I had spent my entire childhood and, you know, adolescence and early 20s just so tunnel vision. Yeah. Um, and so I was in this serious relationship and, you know, had amazing friends in the city and amazing cultural experiences and school. And I was like, you know, I'm a huge nerd. I was nerding out, like loving learning about psychology, loving my other classes in school. Mm -hmm. And it really fueled my dancing in a way that, you know, I, I, I never felt that I danced at my best when I was just in a full-time company focusing on that. And that's not to say that for everyone, that's a struggle. Um, for example, when I was with Texas Ballet Theater, uh, my roommate at the time, who was actually a dear friend of mine from growing up, Nicole Von Inc., we, um, we were actually Clara with Radio City together as little tykes, and then she joined Texas Ballet Theater a season after me. Um, she's still there, and the company's actually recently ranked, and she's now a principal, which is amazing, wow. and I'm super proud of her. But it was interesting because we were roommates. It was my second season there. It was her first season. And I remember noting already at that point that one of the things that Nicole was highly adept at that I was not is that she had this ability to keep her life broader than just dance. So she wasn't obsessing over dance. So I remember on weekends, we had like one day off and she took a job working at Abercrombie & Fitch just because she was like, I need to meet other people and make friends outside dance and just have something in my life other than dance and like you know my friend Paige who is still with the company as well she was really good at like reading books and going on walks and just engaging in other things and so the two of them they've both stuck with Texas Ballet Theater for the entirety of their careers they're actually both principals now both thriving makes me super proud because they're both just top quality human beings too but one of the things that I noticed about them from the get-go is that they were far more aware of and more capable of sort of keeping a holistic mindset even while being in a full-time company and for some people that works and for some of us we really need 
to be put in situations where we have these other things at our at our feet. Like I, I think I struggled even more with my sense of like being tunnel visioned when I was with Eugene Ballet because we were constantly touring. Mm-hmm. So we'd be on the road three, four weeks at a time. And so, you know, you get back and you're just exhausted. And I had no mental energy to really pursue other things in my life. Um, so for me personally, freelancing has been a way to sort of really rebuild that, um, you know, that more sort of healthy sense of perfectionism and whole holism is not a word, but just like a holistic way of living my life and career. Um, yeah. So I think that that's a key though. That's a key in to helping people. Um, because I have a lot of friends who they've just grown up in dance and like us and yeah, you don't really have any other friends that aren't dancers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've never been in a relationship until you're like 25 or 26. 26. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You don't know what that is. Like, right. you're kind of like a child in an adult body. It's so, it's and so you, true. And you're you're surrounded by everyone else who's the same, so you don't think anything's different. I always found that so crazy. Mm-hmm. And then once you get out of it, like, at least for me during COVID, I started running, and I met all these people who run, and they just do normal jobs, 9 to 5. Muggles. <laughs> muggle <yeah>. jobs. <laughs> like, normal people. That's what and I refer to it as a muggle, as a muggle job. When I um, when I was looking for a, you know, non-dance job during COVID, I had to call my younger sister, and I was like, Amanda, how do I make a muggle resume? I have no idea how to do it. <laughs> yeah, like, I didn't know how to do that either. Mm-hmm. And it's just so interesting, because I think... For me, to get getting out of, I also was an extreme, like, perfectionist and Bunhead. stressed about everything. <laughs> and someone once told me that if I wasn't doing something that was helping my dance career, I was wasting my life. Mm-hmm. Or so, if you take a day off class, like, yeah. what are you even doing with your life? Yeah. yeah. And then recently, and since I got into that environment, I heard about other people, talked to them, and realized, oh, yeah, there's more to life than mm-hmm. just this or just stressing about one role or one company or whatever and I've had friends now who've transitioned into other careers and they still take class and some of them say that because they aren't stressed anymore about their dancing that they've actually yeah they dance better Mm -hmm. and some people who are so focused on their weight and their body like they feel so much more comfortable in their body and maybe they even I mean it wasn't that they needed to lose weight and but they, they were, like, holding on to something, and then they just felt like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much lighter. I've seen know? that happen to a lot of people. It's and, interesting. And it's like they, they turned into their normal state, like their um, equilibrium, as you would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. they returned to their equilibrium because they're not so stressed about their life, and they're not yeah. so worried about something that they can't change. Um, and so, yeah, maybe exposing people to other things or or helping younger dancers understand hey you can like read a book or go do this Mm -hmm. and I think these days now maybe that's changing a little bit with like the internet and I see more people learning about other things other than dance Mm -hmm. like younger dancers that I know it is I think I think one of the beautiful things is that it is becoming more common for dancers to do a bachelor's on the side, to pursue college on the side. I think, you know, historically in dance, it was like, oh, if you go to college, you failed. And now these days, 
there are dancers in major companies having major freelance careers all over the map who are also taking academic classes on the side. I think Megan Fairchild is like wrapping up her MBA or something. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not frowned upon, it's not uncommon. And I think that is something that really helps to balance dancers. I also, I did want to jump back to something I was saying before. We were talking about sort of like turning points and rehumanizing and sort of finding a healthier way of approaching, you know, life as a dancer and a career as a dancer. And I mentioned, you know, some people will choose to exit the career when they hit that turning point. Some people will find ways to adjust, maybe to switch their career to freelancing or switch to a different company where they feel more valued. I also want to mention that this is in no way, this is me, let me start this over again. I am in no way saying that in order to become healthy, you have to leave a ballet company because there are also plenty of dancers. And this is something we have also found in, in the data from our research. There are also plenty of dancers who do remain in full-time companies in the same company they've been in. And they, on their own, learn ways to sort of rehumanize. Um, so... Sometimes the turning point that I'm referring to can come from, you know, like I said, an injury or a case of burnout or mental health struggles. Sometimes it can literally just come from sort of gaining maturity over time and having your peers, having your colleagues sort of point out to you that, you know, you're doing better than you think you are. You're being too hard on yourself. It can, it can almost be like a, a set of social cues that sort of makes you realize like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm more okay than I give myself credit for. And I think a theme that we've also seen in the data with a lot of dancers is that that turning point can then lead to staying in the same company, but learning how to be kinder to yourself, learning some self-acceptance, sort of realizing that what makes a dancer interesting is not perfection. It's not you know, you're not typically, you know, so many of the dancers in our interviews in this study have said, like, it's not the perfect line or the perfect technique or the skinniest body that draws me when I'm watching another dancer on stage. But when I'm watching these dancers who really move me, there's something unique about them. There's something imperfect. And that's what draws me. And a lot of dancers have even noted in our interviews that the favorites, the company favorites, the stars in ballet, the ones who, you know, seemingly have the most glorious, glowing, successful, you know, by objective standards careers, some of these dancers are not even people who are the most skinny or the most arched banana feet or the most perfect, but there's something interesting about them that draws you. There's something that compels you to watch them. Um, and I think over time, a lot of dancers will see these things and start to learn how to slowly rehumanize and accept the beauty that comes with imperfection and accept the beauty that comes with, and the joy really, that comes with working on constantly improving yourself, but also knowing that what makes you unique as an artist sometimes is within your imperfections. Um, and sometimes it leads you to, you know, like for example, like I'm, petite and muscular. I'm not like a wayfish, you know, thing. I'm not like a five foot six string bean. And I was always told early in my career, like back when I was an apprentice, people always used to tell me like, you know, like you're small, you're muscular, you have red hair. You're not like the prototypical ballerina who's going to just fit into a core. It might be a slower trajectory for you, but stick it out because you have some really special qualities that later in your career might really help you. And I think over time as I've you know, learn to sort of rehumanize a little more and live a more holistic life and not be so hyper fixated on 
ballet and my technique and my body and my career at all times, I've really seen that ring true. And I, I've seen the things that have made me unique. They have lent themselves to more unique career opportunities and roles that I never thought possible or even really envisioned myself in. And the way that that's really happened is that I, I sort of have learned to accept my imperfections. Um, you know, there are still bad days. Like, it will always be in there. There will always be the, the days of body image struggles and the days of wishing I had prettier, archier feet. You know, we all have those days. But um, I think really coming to a place of confidence in myself and a more holistic lifestyle and, and just a healthier place emotionally and sort of that, like, rehumanization process it, it, it has led me to a career that's been more fulfilling than I really ever could have dreamed um, as cliche as that sounds but I, I do think that there are many many ways that dancers rehumanize within companies within their careers um, you don't have to leave ballet to make that happen but it does take a lot of maturity and self-growth I think to to get there and maybe some therapy yeah. <laughs> well that's amazing well, can you tell me a little bit about the research that you want to start doing? Sure. Um, so it's interesting. I've known for a long time, um, particularly since my early years at Columbia, that when I'm done dancing, I would like to go for my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, of course, those programs are highly competitive to get into, so, you know, it's, it's a stretch. But so is ballet, after all. So, yeah. you know, I think so many of us, when we're done with ballet, pursue other highly competitive careers <laughs> it's true <laughs> um but yeah so I I think you know like I mentioned earlier I've always had this glorified image of what it's like to be a therapist and I always kind of knew I wanted to go into psychology and be a therapist and as I've learned more about what the career entails um you know I've honed in more on the direction I want to go which is to do a PhD in clinical psychology because that then affords you the opportunity to both be a clinical scientist and pursue clinical research on psychology and also be a practicing clinician and work with patients. And I would love to do both um, and have the door open to do both. I think both through my own experience as a professional dancer and also more recently through the research I've been doing through my thesis at Columbia, through this Boston College project, um, through you know doing some more research on trauma, um, on this project I'm working on at Mount Sinai, I've really started to hone in on where I want to go um, with research down the road in a you know in grad school and hopefully a future career and trauma at large is my interest I think you know that's obviously very broad but I think a lot of the time when people speak of traumas we think of acute traumas you know trauma God forbid from 9-11 or a plane crash or you know a terrifying you know witnessing a terrifying event but Trauma can also come from chronic exposure to environments that are unhealthy, um, whether that be, you know, training and growing up in a ballet school or company that, you know, you know, it, it's intense training. Like, I, I think it would be very hard for any of us to come away from ballet training without some subsequent trauma. Um, you know, the ways we are shaped to be so highly perfectionistic and, you know, I think it's very hard to strive for such levels of excellence without falling into some maladaptive levels of perfectionism. Um, you know, there's so much pressure on body. There's so much pressure on performance at all times. There's so much competition that I think inherently the environment can be quite traumatic. And then often, you know, in schools and companies, the environments can have elements of dehumanization. So 
What I'm really broadly interested in researching is how traumatic environments or dehumanizing environments really shape us beyond dance that can apply to unhealthy family environments, unhealthy schools, or myriad environments, but my own interests have been shaped from my experience in ballet and mm -hmm. researching in ballet. But how do these factors shape us? How do they affect our experiences of the world? I think I find this with myself, I find this with my colleagues, with my friends, people who are still dancing, people who are long retired from dancing. It's the ways we view ourselves. I think we often view ourselves with such deep imposter syndrome as not being enough, as never being good enough. This can manifest in romantic relationships, in friendships, in jobs. I think it is a driver of excellence in so many dancers. I think this is why you see so many dancers excel academically and you know in careers post dance. We tend to excel because we're so driven and have such high levels of expectation ourselves but then this can also lead to such unhealthy levels of anxiety depression you know a lot of substance abuse imposter syndrome just out of control um you know and, and I've, I've seen it in my own experiences in romantic relationships i've seen it in my own experiences you know starting to work in research you know anytime i'm in a new position you know i spend the first six months just constantly feeling these fears of failure um, and I see this in my friends going into all different all different areas of work leaving dance going into consulting going into research going to school going into new relationships it's just across the board it seems to affect our experience um, so I am really interested in researching the ways that context and environment affect those factors and I'm also of course, interested in researching the ways that we can mitigate those effects. Um, you know, I guess I'll leave it to organizational psychology scholars and other scholars to figure out how to fix the environments themselves. What I would like to do is help people find ways to cope with unhealthy environments. You know, it's, it's a slow process, particularly in dance, and this is another theme that's emerged in our research, is that as the world at large tries to change, you know, tries to become you know, more inclusive and more um, progressive in, in terms of everything, the dance world is specifically very slow to change. And I think the dance world has made admirable efforts in the past few years, um, you know, has really had a reckoning since COVID, but admirable, but slow. And there's still a ways to go. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, while in tandem with this, there needs to be change made in the world of ballet, you know, in the world of dance itself, I also think that, you know, there need to be ways, you know, there need to be resources and skills for dancers to learn how to cope um, yeah. with these environments. This is in no way me saying that, oh, the environments are going to stay as is and we just have to learn how to deal. We need to change the environments too. But I think my particular area of interest is like socio-emotional coping skills um, and ways that we can sort of rehumanize ourselves for our own health and also to not perpetuate trauma in the next generation, whether that be our children, um, you know, whether we go into leadership positions in ballet and have dancers under our wing, how do we, you know, how do we bring forth healthier practices without pushing our trauma onto the next generation? And I think a lot of that will take different forms of training and coaching and awareness. Um, and so that's sort of broadly the area that I'd like to go into with research. Um, I think ballet companies are an interesting 
jumping off point for me because that's where my background is, that's where my experience is, but I would, you know, hope that this research would be generalizable beyond just ballet companies and it's just how do humans cope with, you know, traumatic situations and environments mm -hmm. They can never be completely avoided, unfortunately, so how do we cope and how do we stay healthy? Yeah, and I think now because our generation is growing up and we're going to become the next people who are, you know, choreographing, leading companies, being, like, the older generation soon. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's an excuse anymore that, oh, my teacher said this to me, so right. I'm going to act like that. Right. Because I've had many a teacher say, or the excuse of someone someone's excuse for them being mean or being mm -hmm. abusive to the class or saying something horrible is, oh, they were just raised like that mm -hmm. with their teacher. I hear that all the time. And I don't think that's an excuse anymore for our generation. It's not. Because we have resources and we, I don't know, we can uplift and change the way it is. And mm -hmm. it's going to be hard because there's also things ingrained in us from such a young age that we still hold on to. Like, you walk into a ballet class, like even an open class in New York, and you feel some weird vibe. Absolutely. It's like... Absolutely. It's anxiety-provoking. Yeah, it's such a strange vibe, um, but we're used to it. But some people who come in that are, for example, starting out when they're older, they come in, they're like, what is this? Mm -hmm. It's a strange environment. No one talks. Mm -hmm. There's this thing, like... No one talks before the class, really. If you talk, ooh, that's weird. It's a strange you know? culture. Yeah, and there are these unsaid rules that everyone knows. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of etiquette things that not everyone knows that isn't a dancer, which I guess is just part of dance. But it can also be, you know, kind of stressful for people who are just coming into that environment. Absolutely. Um yeah, and it's just su such a, an interesting place, and I think it can start to change with our generation and, like, what you're doing, providing those, you know, resources to people in the future. and Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, and helping change them. I mean, I think it's a really, really awesome thing that you're doing, and you provide such an insight into a different world than most people. So, I don't know if I was... <laughs> If I was behind that desk, like, in, at the school, and I was writing and, like, giving people admission, <laughs> I would give you admission into my PhD program. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I, I will say also, I think that, you know, within the world of dance, and again, I'll speak just for the world of dance, because this is sort of my area, and hope, but I would hope that this would apply across other worlds, too. I do think that something that will continue to help change the world from within is also the fact that it is becoming more normal for dancers to go to school during their careers or pursue other things. And, and I do think that broadly there is a push in the dance world, especially as dancers hit the professional level to sort of, you know, broaden and diversify their worlds. And just with seeing more people go to school as they dance, I'm sure this is something you experienced in school as well. But one of the first things that I found when I started at Columbia is sort of like this strange juxtaposition between being a student at a little at a liberal arts institution and being a professional ballet dancer doing them simultaneously is particularly fascinating because 
in ballet, you know, <coughs> excuse me, we're, we're so held to these norms and, you know, like not rocking the boat and not speaking out and conformity. And then you go to Columbia or you go to a liberal arts institution. I just say Columbia because that's my experience. And you are encouraged to do nothing but speak out, push back, critically question, critically think. And so it's this interesting sort of, you know, oppositional force that for me as I've continued in my career as a professional dancer will also, you know, well, now I've graduated, but having spent a number of years at Columbia and now working in research and as a Columbia grad, and there's like this trope of Columbia grads where like, we're taught to question everything and speak back about everything and yada, yada, yada. And I think it's interesting being in those two worlds simultaneously because I've definitely found myself in situations where I have seen exactly what you just mentioned, people treating their company members and their students um, in a somewhat verbally abusive manner and the excuse sort of being, well, this is how we handled it back in our day and we had to deal with this, so you have to deal with this too. Whereas in the past, I would have just sort of taken it and been silent with it. Mm -hmm. I think as I went through my years at Columbia, I got more and more bold in speaking up and calling that out. And I have had some really interesting um, sort of fiery moments with directors over the years where I've called that out. um, And I've made it clear that I will not work in an environment where I'm treated as such. I won't tolerate seeing other dancers being treated as such. And I've also made the point to a number of directors that not only is it something I'm not comfortable with, but you know, psychologically it's not productive to have someone demeaning you at all times. It's actually, you know, if you are given constructive, you know, positive but constructive, honest feedback, you're more likely to work well and grow and not be so bogged down in anxiety that you can't perform at your best anyway. So it is interesting because I've I think I've gotten increasingly you know, a little fiery over my years at Columbia, and I always joke, like, well, I am a redhead, so the fire is in me naturally, and I've had a lot of moments with myself where I'm like, am I too fiery to be in the dance world now that I'm also, like, you know, more outspoken? But what I have found is that with the right director, it leads to a really respectful conversation, and it has actually led to, whether a temporary or a long-term change, but some kind of change and some kind of increased understanding and communication in that environment, there have been other times where it hasn't worked so well and you know I've parted ways with that director and that is one of the reasons that I've preferred freelancing in the later part of my career is because I feel more confident I feel that I have more agency and more actual job security because if it's not the right fit with one company or director there are myriad others that I can't work with um, and that has been something that's become increasingly important to me because I I'm just at this point in my 30s, I'm no longer comfortable feeling that I'm perpetuating sort of the dehumanizing ways or the verbal harassment that can come with being in a company or with like sort of the intergenerational trauma passing down. I don't Mm -hmm. feel comfortable working with that anymore. And so I will speak up, um, you know, and I try to keep it in a kind way. Um, But I I will usually, I will speak up more and I've gotten more and more comfortable with that. Um, And it's made me more comfortable to to select and to sort of self-select into environments where, you know, dancers are treated with value as humans before um, just being bodies. Um, And and, and I do think that with more students being in school and learning to develop a voice and learning to think critically and realizing that it's okay to, you know, have an opinion in the world at large, I do think and hope that that will really 
internally help the field of ballet. Um, but it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of push within. It's going to take a lot of work to, to help people heal intergenerationally and then even within current generations. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. But I believe it can be done in baby steps. So yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, and you're gonna help change it. You're gonna help. You're gonna help be one of those people. I mean, you already are. And I mean, by sharing on this podcast, we're sharing such great information for people to know, and uh, you know, changing people one step at a time. I guess one step at a time. You know, and it's it's also it's it's an interesting place to be still in this career. You know, I still love performing. I'm still performing quite a bit. I still have a deep, deep love of the art form of ballet. Mm -hmm. um, and it's challenging to be critical of the structures that surround it while still in it, um, because there's so much beauty in this world. And I think it's so worth addressing the underlying issues to help the beauty of this art form survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's, it's definitely challenging. There's a lot within that can and should change. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a blast chatting with you again. Yeah, so where can our listeners find you and connect with you on the internet? Oh, with me. Um, you know, it's funny. I always forget my Instagram handle. Does it have underscores? Yes, I think it does. So I'm Allie, A-L-I, underscore, P, underscore, block, B-L-O-C-K, um, on Instagram. Or you can find me on Facebook, Allie Block. Um... I do have a website that's linked on both my Instagram and Facebook. It's not super updated, to be honest, but you can find my... It's like a dance website that I should probably work on updating. Um, but you can find it through both of those pages. But yeah, I can definitely be reached through Instagram, Facebook, and happy to chat with anyone who who is equally nerdy, passionate about any of these topics or um, any of the above. So Well, great. I'll link all of that on the description and I'll be posting on Instagram so you guys can find Allie. And yeah, thank you so much. And thank you. Looking forward to listening back this episode and re-hearing uh, all the amazing things that we just talked about. Thanks, Nicole. It's <laughs> been fun. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this week's episode of Dancer Talks. You can follow Dancer Talks on Instagram at Dancer Talks, as well as check us out on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Dancer Talks. Also, don't forget to check out Allie on Instagram as well as her website, which I will link below in the description. Make sure to subscribe to our Spotify or Apple Music in order to stay up to date on every podcast episode. My name is McCall Sheets, and keep dancing.